Cue the synthesizers and the neon lights. As we fasten our seatbelts and journey back into the early 2000s, a time when flip phones were all the rage, low-rise jeans reigned supreme, and the echoes of the 1980s lingered in the air. This episode takes us to Miami. So I'm going to do my best Sophia Petrillo from Golden Girls. Picture it. Chalk Airways Flight 101, where the promises of adventure soared higher than the skyscrapers of Miami Vice's iconic skyline and Golden Girls' Miami Nice skyline. Get ready for a narrative that blends the essence of the 2000s with the mysterious crash that shook the aviation world. So grab your parachute of curiosity, because this flight is about to take a nosedive into the enigmatic skies of Chalk Airways. Fasten your seatbelts, fellow time travelers, as we embark on a journey through the clouds and the secrets that linger within. This is Destination Aviation. Well, welcome everyone, listeners, back to the podcast. I am your host, Jeff. We had our episode a week ago that we adjusted things a little bit. I had some comments in about liking the intro leading up, but they liked some of the other stuff about it. So we added the intro back. One of our listeners, awesome, amazing listener, mentioned that they like the lead-in because it gives them the opportunity to realize that story time is ahead. Thank you for submitting that comment. I always love to hear the constructive, positive feedback uh, that people have about the show. So uh, thanks for letting us know about that. In the news, we talk often about politics. Uh, We are still in limbo when it comes to FAA reauthorization. We are staring down the barrel again as we reach towards the end of December. Uh, Mike Johnson, known now for his pornography (laughs) with his son. Uh, I guess they have an app that they share together to check each other's pornography intake. Um, Interesting thought there, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) But beyond that, uh, it sounds like Senator Duckworth, Senator Siennan, and Chuck Schumer, the families of the Kogan air crash, Uh, Everybody's still combating about the 1,500-hour rule in pilot training, but maybe there's something on the horizon that the Senate's bill could get out and out for a vote. Um, Not holding my breath. Uh, We'll see what ends up happening there, but lots of fun stuff happening. Uh, As a matter of fact, it's interesting. I was just talking with the East Hampton Airport officials today uh, out in East Hampton, on Long Island. So I asked them if they were in George Santos's district, which they weren't, but they're adjacent to. So it was interesting to get a little tidbit. I did not even anticipate that as I was getting onto that meeting today. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. They're from where George Santos uh, paid for his OnlyFans with, <laughs> with his uh, campaign contributions. How ridiculous was that, by the way? Huh? I mean, you would expect some people to uh, hide it maybe a little bit better. He literally just took money out of his campaign funds to pay for an OnlyFans. And then also people would contribute money to him, like $2,500, and he would charge him $5,000. And that was, they would get hit by the IRS because it's above individual contributions to one uh, political per or to one individual uh, who's running for office. So uh, a personal contribution. I mean, there, there was like no even avenue out for him. <laughs> So we got to see him scurry away in his car, which was uh, always interesting, but enjoyable, (laughs) I guess. Nonetheless, one of six House of Representatives ever expelled from uh, Congress. So amazing stuff there for sure. In other news, we do have a YouTuber who is going to jail. 
Uh, he, uh, if you remember, uh, I think it was a year or two ago, he crashed his single engine airplane into the Cat California National Forest. Um, admitting that he downed the aircraft to boost views on his YouTuber. I think if anybody's on YouTube, which uh, we are, but let's not just say us on this. We're, we're cool with me, right? Everybody's cool here. <laughs> okay. Well, even if you're not, uh, let's just say there's a YouTuber. I think all of us know that we would be okay with them going to jail. Um, this Trevor Jacob 29 uh, made an admission in a plea agreement filed in federal court in Los Angeles. Uh, he pleaded guilty to one count of destruction and concealment with the intent to obstruct a federal investigation, a crime that carries a maximum penalty of 20 years behind bars. Jacob posted the video behind the charge, I crashed my airplane on December 23, 2021. As of Thursday, the 13-minute clip had nearly 2.9 million views. The video shows Jacob described in the plea agreement as an experienced pilot and skydiver. He took off from Lompoc City Airport and Taylor Craft BL-65. This is nearly a month before he published the video online. Roughly one minute into the video, Jacob flies over Los Pedros National Forest. A camera mounted on the aircraft shows the propeller appear to stop working. And then cameras capture Jacob jumping out of the plane as it crashes into the mountains. Uh, unfortunately, Jacob intentionally did this uh, to get views. Uh, that's kind of the world we live in right now, right? Everybody wants views uh, to stop the engine of the aircraft. I don't understand it. I fully intend at some point, um, talking with some people in my life, that we're maybe going to start filming some of the flights that we do and putting it on YouTube. But you can sure as heck bet that I will never shut my engine off purposely and crash an airplane for views. That is just ridiculous. Um, so he is going to spend six months in jail, which is well short of the 20 years that he potentially uh, could have gotten. He probably will get his notoriety, though, that he was anticipating anyways. I don't know if the FAA is going to give them or give him his pilot license back, but I guess we'll find out. So, uh, unfortunate set of circumstances in the age we live in right now. And if you also saw, I remember this from my time in California, uh, Hawaiian Airlines and Alaska Airlines are two of kind of the mainstays of the West Coast for the United States. I remember I was actually talking with one of our uh, sergeants who worked for the San Jose Police Department, and he was trying to go to Hawaii with his wife, and he looked at Hawaiian Airlines, and I had asked him, well, did you look at Alaska Airlines? And his response back to me, no, I'm not going to Alaska, I'm going to Hawaii. And I said, yeah, I know that's the name on the side of the plane, but they fly other places besides just Alaska. Um, I don't think that that registered either, but uh, <laughs> Alaska and Hawaiian do have a lot of parallels. Obviously, the 49th and the 50th states, uh, both are state-run airport systems. Uh, both uh, Alaska and Hawaii are heavily dependent on air travel to connect uh, the islands, to connect uh, the vastness of Alaska. So it's interesting to see these this merger. Um, I was really interested to see what name they will take, right? They have the Eskimo on the tail of Alaska Airlines, and then they have um, – uh, you know, the Hawaiian female on the back of the Hawaiian aircraft. And there's just such an identifiable uh, uh, element to the livery of those aircraft to their cultures. Uh, so it will be interesting to see how they integrate between both um, cultures and, and where we end up with this. But uh, I think it was $1.9 billion they spent in Alaska. Airlines is acquiring Hawaiian and it will be based out of Seattle, it will be very interesting to see how it continues to shape, mold, and fold. I do have 
uh, both of them as airplane models. Any good person in aviation, right, has a ton of airplane models. So if you someone can just look into your office and be like, oh, this person must work in aviation. Because look, they have plane models. That's the whole idea behind plane models. That and the sniffing glue. I kid, nobody's sniffing glue. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so interesting news on that front. And then something a little more closer to home for me here, the Chicago O'Hare Airport. United and American have announced that they are not backing the plans for the O'Hare modernization due to the fact that it's currently $1.5 billion, yes, that is billion dollars, over budget. Uh, I can't even imagine being into a project that's $1.5 billion over budget. Uh, as an usual course, there's been some talk that United may pull out their headquarters. Uh, so typically what happens in these high-stake negotiations uh, that have been ongoing for months. Um, so I don't know. O'Hare definitely needs some modernization, though. The last time I was in there, um, there were FID screens many missing, so the flight information display screens. A guy came out in a wheelchair and vomited. Now, I'm not saying a new terminal would help that necessarily. <laughs> but it just, you know, if the terminal was nicer, it may make the vomit seem more, you know, uh, <laughs> something you could deal with when <laughs> you get on your flight. But, you know, they, they updated the airfield recently. As we know, the O'Hare modernization took that into consideration. They were going to create this kind of global hub for both American and United, but all of that is now currently in jeopardy uh, because of the ballooning budget for this terminal. I will say with O'Hare, it's a residual cost structure, which basically gives the airlines a majority in interest so they can approve all these kind of capital developments and improvements. And of course, with both airlines having such a huge presence in the Chicago market, they can kind of push their weight around. Uh, but in their defense, $1.5 billion is a heck of a amount of money to swallow to just be over budget. So it'll be curious to see how that continues to unfold with both of those groups. Well, I guess all three of those groups, including the city. So as many of you know, if you listen to the podcast, I was feeling under the weather for quite a while there. Uh, I did get sick, um, got the flu or some variation of the, the flu. And so um, been trying to just maintain uh, my own health and, and get these kind of podcasts uh, still up on a regular interval and rolling. Um, so we changed it up last week, still changing it up a little bit, adjusting from some of the comments that we were able to, to get in. Um, but really, for me, it was kind of trying to figure out what the next episode was going to be for the podcast. I'm very much a child of the 80s and 90s. Uh, so things like Miami Vice, Golden Girls, you heard us talk about it up front. Uh, those are a couple of the staple shows uh, for me. I actually lived on a boat for a while, and I had this thought in my head, like, I'm Don Johnson. Uh, but in reality, I was Jeff, who fell on the back of his boat in the San Francisco Bay with a box of Jack in the Box, <laughs> uh, which spilled my fries all over into the bay. Um, so not probably as elegant as a Don Johnson vibe. Uh, so, But as uh, the other night, I was actually, um, we were watching some music videos. Yes, amazing music videos. Um, one of them happened to be Careless Whisper. Uh, and so as we were listening to Careless Whisper from George Michael, the actual music video shows Chalk Airlines and the individual in Miami getting on a Chalk Airways, which is an amphibious aircraft. 
And it just clicked with me because I remember the story watching one Miami Vice. The aircraft was featured in that show. I don't think it was ever featured in the Golden Girls. And if you don't know from the reference at the beginning, uh, back in the day, Miami Vice and the Golden Girls were out around the same period, both set in Miami. And so they would call it Miami Vice and they would call the Golden Girls Miami Nice. So that was the reference at the beginning. I wish I was smart enough to take credit for coming up with it, uh, but I am not. So uh, as we started talking about it last night, we were saying, hey, this could be a good idea for a podcast. So let's talk a little bit about what Chalk Airways was. They are no longer an airline, uh, but who they were and what this accident was and the kind of significance behind it and maybe just some of the things that have popped up in pulp culture about uh, Chalk Airways. So I think one of the things to do up front here is just talk a little bit about the history of Chalk Airways. Uh, the airline was founded by Arthur Burns, Pappy Chalk. It started as an ad hoc charter operations as the Red Arrow Flying Service in 1917 flying a float plane. 1917, that is crazy. Uh, after Pappy Chalk served in the Army Air Service in World War I, he returned to Miami and commenced scheduled service between Miami, Bimini, in the Bahamas in February of 1919 as Chalk's Flying Service. Chalk's first base was a beach umbrella on the Miami shore of Biscayne Bay. In 1926, a landfill island, Watson Island, was created in Biscayne Bay close to Miami. Chalk's built an air terminal there and operated it from the island for the next 75 years. Now this next part is a little bit of a window into maybe some of the issues that came down the road for Chalk Flying Service. During Prohibition, Chalks was a major source of alcohol smuggling from the Bahamas to the United States. Pappy Chalk, as it was, sold the airline to a friend in 1966, but continued to be involved in the daily operations of the airline until he retired in 1975. He died in 1977 at the age of 88. In the early 1970s, Frakes Aviation bought the rights to the aircraft and began a conversion program, replacing the old Pratt & Whitney R-1340 Wasp radial engines with the Pratt & Whitney Canadian PT-6 turboprops. By 1985, three of Chalk's eight Grumman Mallards had been converted with 5X military piston engine Grumman Albatrosses aircraft making up the balance of the fleet. Ballards are interesting. I have some behind me in the river. They like to come up, uh, especially this time of year in the winter, and eat some bird seed. They are uh, nature's friends. Sometimes I feel like down the river, they're laughing at me when I go out because they go, <laughs> and it sounds like, hey, wait a minute. I'm just trying to feed you guys. Why are you laughing at me? But um, yes, yeah, so these amphibious aircraft, uh, back to our story and away from the ducks that are laughing at me. Uh, were updated 1985, that is the year Miami Vice made its debut, and the Chalk Aircraft, uh, which is in question that we're talking about with the accident, was actually featured in the very first episode of Miami Vice. In 1974, Resorts International purchased Chalk Airlines, which became the primary carrier to Paradise Island near the Bahama capital of Nassau, where Resorts International owned and operated hotels and other resort facilities. After Resorts International constructed a short takeoff and landing runway on Paradise Island, it switched to using uh, the de Havilland Canada DHC-7 turboprop aircraft operated by subsidiary Paradise Island Airlines. It sold chalks in 1991 to United Capital Corporation, which is an Illinois-based investment firm not affiliated with United Airlines. 
United Capital expanded Chalk service to Key West, Florida at Nassau and acquired additional aircraft, but struggled financially. In 1996, United Capital sold Chalk to a group of investors who operated the airline under the name Pan Am Airbridge. In January of 1998, Texas-based aircraft lease company Air Alaska purchased 70% of Pan Am Air Bridge. But following the collapse of Air Alaska, Pan Am Air Bridge filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection only a year later, on January 11, 1999. James Califalone, a businessman and former Eastern Airlines pilot, purchased Chalks out of bankruptcy for $925,000 on August 2, 1999. At that point, the airline was reduced out to two aircraft, and 35 employees. James Confalo bought five additional Grumman Mallard seaplanes and arranged a contract to buy 14 larger Grumman G111 seaplanes to expand the operation. On December 17, 1999, the airline relaunched as Chalks Ocean Airways. In late 2001, following the September 11th attacks, Chalks was forced to leave its longtime operations base on Watson Island due to security concerns over its proximity to the port of Miami. Helicopter traffic had also increased around Watson Island. Operations moved to Fort Lauderdale International Airport, where Chalks already had a maintenance base. Now, there's a little bit more of the history here, uh, but I think it would make more sense if we get into the accident itself and then circle back to some of the history on the company. Uh, so uh, as we talked about, uh, we're now into the late 2000s. We went through various owners. We went through bankruptcy. And of course, 9-11, which changed everything in aviation. So you have a struggling airline, a new owner. Uh, you're moving your base of operations. Uh, now we're getting to 2005 and the accident. So let's get into a little bit here of that. The gentle hum of the turboprops echoed through the Florida air on that fateful December day in 2005 as Chalk's Ocean Airways Flight 101 prepared for its journey from Fort Lauderdale to Bimini, a routine passage over the Azure waters. Little did the 18 passengers and true crew members aboard know their destinies were entwined with a 58-year-old relic, the Grumman GT-73T Turbine Mallard the last airborne echo of an era gone by. That day, the Grumman G73T Turbine Mallard was captained by Michelle Marks, 37, who had just recently become captain with Chalk Airlines. First Officer Paul DeSantis, 34, of Wyoming, Pennsylvania, had joined the airline eight months before the accident. Marks had 2,820 hours of flight under her belt, and DeSantis had accumulated 1,420 flight hours. The flight was routine that day. They did stop to pick up VIPs. Sergio Dalagancourt and his girlfriend, Sergio was the grandson of the Picardi family fortune, so the Picardi rum family fortune. Most passengers that flew on Chalks Airlines did it out of necessity and the fact that it was so convenient to the islands and where they were going. One of the main reasons, or I should say the main ticket driving sales for this airline as well, was the departures in both an amphibious right uh, boat and slash airplane. So the fact that you're actually taking off on water. So after loading the plane, it was a fairly normal takeoff in Government Cut Channel Way which connects the Port of Miami with the Atlantic Ocean. One of the standard procedures for takeoff in one of these Grumman's is that both the pilot and the first officer have their hands jointly on the throttle during takeoff. This is in case there's any inadvertent waves that cause the pilot to pull back on the throttle. Uh, this didn't happen. The aircraft took off fine, 
and is now cruising past the very popular South Miami Beach, which is packed with tourists. The aircraft's climbing through 500 feet when suddenly the plane rolls violently and dives. Tourists capture what appears to be the right wing of the aircraft ripping off of the plane as it plummets towards the Atlantic Ocean. At roughly around 2.38 p.m. in the afternoon, Chalks Airways hits the Atlantic Ocean. The onlookers are stunned at what they see. Local lifeguards are the first to respond. They take their jet skis and equipment and they head out towards the crash site. The crash site itself was eerily calm. They knew right away from some of the bodies that they had seen that there was going to be only recovery, no rescue mission. Up to this point, Chalks Airlines had had pretty much an impeccable safety record. So the NTSB mobilized the unit, sent it down to Miami Beach to start to investigate what happened here. Of course, rumors started to swirl. We talked about Sergio, who's the Picardi grandson, so heir to the fortune. He had boarded this aircraft uh, to go purchase a luxury yacht. However, there, the rumors that swore basically are around the fact that his grandfather had a lot of issues with Fidel Castro back in the day while he was building his empire. So uh, actually, the FBI was even brought in to investigate some of this wreckage because it did appear at some points that maybe there was an explosion that completely separated the right wing. After further investigation, though, by the FBI and the NTSB, it was ruled out that there was any foul play because of Sergio being on the aircraft. So then the attention focused away to right pilot error. They do have the video. They had the video from the tourists that showed that this wing ripped off, which pretty much immediately ruled out pilot error and the fact that it looked like there was a structural issue that happened, which then refocused the NTSB onto structural issues that were going on potentially with this aircraft. So part of this investigation went into things like the age of the fleet. The accident aircraft had been built in 1947, and the manufacturer Grumman, now referred to as Northrop Grumman, and side note, I actually had a chance to go tour the Northrop Grumman plant. Uh, it was pretty awesome. They do set up tours uh, for the public, so if you get a chance, I definitely would recommend trying to go to one of those locations. Uh, they had produced only 60 of these aircraft types. Grumman ceased operations of the aircraft in 1951. So think about this. This is 2005. This aircraft has not been manufactured since 1951. This left operators with no source of new spare parts. Chalks Ocean Airways had to resort to purchasing several unairworthy mallards to cannibalize for spare parts. In addition, the sort of aircraft used for Chalks operations, a passenger-carrying flying boat of this type, was no longer manufactured by aircraft companies, so the option of replacing any of the aging Mallard fleet with newer designs were not available to them. At the time of the accident, the, this particular aircraft was 58 years old. It had accumulated more than 31,000 total flight hours and had completed over 40,000 takeoff and landing cycles. When the aircraft was certified in 1944, the Mallard design was required to satisfy a static strength analysis. However, no fatigue requirement was yet in force, and no satisfactory fatigue analysis method had been developed at that time. The Mallard, therefore, had not been designed with a safety life figure. Unlike most civil transport aircraft today, which have designed fatigue lives of around 65,000 to 70,000 hours, or 20 years, 
In addition, no authorized repair manual for this aircraft type had been issued by the manufacturer, responsibility for authorizing repair techniques, and having been acquired outside of the company after Grumman discontinued support for this type of aircraft. The accident aircraft had been acquired by Chalks in 1980 and upgraded to the G73T Turbo Mallard in 1981 when its original Pratt & Whitney Wasp H piston engines were replaced with a Pratt & Whitney Canadian PT6 turboprop. So this whole stress test thing, right? It's basically, we've all probably bent a paperclip at some point in our life, right? It's the same as like wing design and for metal fatigue on an aircraft. The more you lift just by the principles of flight, right? You come down, you put weight onto it. Eventually, all those components start to have metal fatigue. So at this point, we've flown 40,000 hours, but there's no standard for this aircraft on when it's no longer airworthy. The NTSB investigators also referenced some pilots' concerns. As a result of a number of incidents involving chalk aircraft, concern had risen among chalk pilots about the state of repairs of their aircraft. Pilots had experienced a number of engine failures, and in one incident, an elevator control cable snapped in flight. Although fortunately the pilot were able to land the aircraft safely, this led to the Chalks pilots reconsidering their position in the company, and one, having suffered two engine failures during his period there, resigned his position over what he perceived as a persistent maintenance issue in the fleet. So you have pilots that are concerned, you have an older aircraft that has no testing really requirements set forth by the manufacturer, and you have issues with uh, shoddy maintenance that has been happening since this company's really been acquired and sold. We talked a little bit about that history up front, which is why we did, about going through different owners through the 80s and 90s and ultimately through bankruptcy now being revived. So it looks like corners maybe potentially are starting to be cut, and this is when this accident happens. So the NTSB determined the probable cause of the accident was fatigue failure in the right wing initiated by a crack in the span-wise stringer close to the wing root. The crack had been detected running through a slosh hole, an aperture in the wall of the stringer that allows fuel to flow from one side of the stringer to another, and seemingly repaired earlier, but the repair was eventually proved ineffective. So as a matter of fact, when they went to fix this, they, they actually put an epoxy over this crack, which unfortunately concealed the crack from future maintenance inspections. The Mallard was designed in the 1940s with a so-called wet wing, where the fuel tanks, instead of being separate items within the wing, are constructed from sealed-off portions of the wing structure itself. This eliminates additional weight of the tanks and also allows more fuel to be contained within the given wing size. The drawback of this form of construction is that all of the joints around the tank seams must be sealed in order to ensure that the tank is fuel-tight. In addition... The normal flexing of the wing in flight has a tendency to open seams over extended periods of time. This leads to fuel leaks. And in this case, there had been multiple fuel leaks reported by the mechanics. They looked over this aircraft multiple times, noting often that there was a fuel leak coming from the right side of the aircraft. Grumman had also issued warnings as early as 1963 about fuel leaks from the Mallard's wings, being indicative of possible structural problems. However, the mechanics didn't know this or didn't fixate on it, and they just continued to fix the wing without looking at if there was a root problem. So as we talked about, the accident aircraft over a period of several months suffered from repeated fuel leaks, but had been remedied by the operator by repeatedly applying the sealant inside the seams of the fuel tanks. 
and applying the sealant inside the right wing, the operator inadvertently applied the material over the damaged lower stringer, an important load-bearing structure member of the wing. It was in such a way that we talked about concealed the crack. The crack was discovered during previous maintenance, and an attempt was made to repair the crack by grinding it out and applying the sealant, the operator was required to access inside of the fuel tank small removable inspection hatches and the top of the surface wing. This resulted in poor visibility and awkward conditions for working inside the tank. The sealant concealed the previous repair to the stringer and made subsequent checking for further damage to this component impossible. The first outward sign of possible significant problems with the accident aircraft was when a crack was discovered running from the front of the wing towards the rear. The crack was noticed in the skin of the lower surface of the right wing at the root. After several failed attempts of stopping the crack by drilling stop holes, we've seen this all the time, I see it when I do my pre-flight check on different Cessna 172s that I'm renting, there's a lot of these uh, drilling stop holes all over the aircraft. Uh, it just is kind of the nature of flying older planes, but uh, this was done uh, repeatedly on this crack, and it was also tried to be fixed by applying a fixing doublers. Metal patches intended to take over the load from the damaged part. Uh, so we saw this with some of the other stuff we talked about in previous uh, episodes of this, where they're basically putting a patch, like if you were to patch your jeans, a hole in your jeans, you put a patch over it, it takes some of the stress off of the actual damaged part. Uh, normal repair procedure for minor skin damage. Subsequently, this patch was riveted to the aircraft. However, the crack continued to grow, requiring longer and longer doublers to be fitted. Although the skin crack was slowly getting longer, it was not thought to be anything other than a skin problem, which could be dealt with by affixing a doubler. However, if you remember, Grumman cautioned that if you had a crack plus a fuel leak, this was indicative of a structure problem. Unfortunately, the maintenance technicians did not note this as a potential structural issue. Like most aircraft of this period, the Mallor was built using aluminum-stressed skin construction. Unlike earlier fabric-covered aircraft, where the fabric covering is merely for aerodynamic purposes, the end contributes little to overall strength of the airframe. The metal skin itself carries part of the flight loads and is stressed during flight. Many such aircraft develop minor skin cracks over time, provide appropriate action, is taken to repair these cracks, Safety of the aircraft is not compromised, so if you're taking into effect that you're going to repair the aircraft efficiently, this is not a problem. The unseen cracked stringer on the accidental aircraft allowed for the right wing to flex more during flight, which increased the bending forces at the root, such that the visible skin crack slowly increased in length with each subsequent flight. And then remember, we have 40,000 flight hours on this plane. The crack in the underside of the wing grew. It grew in length until the wing was so weakened it was unable to support the flight loads during the accident flight, and the wings separated. This caused the fuel contained within the wing to be released and ignited, resulting in the fire seen by witnesses. By sheer chance, what we talked about earlier, the tourist from New York was capturing Flight 101's final moments as it crashed into the ocean. This video did, though, extremely help investigators to confirm what witnesses, eyewitnesses, had said about this accident, that the wing had actually separated.
On examination of the wreckage, investigators discovered that in addition to the external doublers, internal doublers had also been affixed to the root area of both wings. However, maintenance records for these repairs were not available. Investigators also concluded that the crack stinger initiated the wing loss and probably failed completely some considerable amount of time prior to the accident, leading to substantial weakening of the wing structure. So basically, where this stringer was supposed to be taking most of the support of the aircraft takeoff and landings, it had basically corroded away, disconnected, and now the wing had full uh, weight and takeoff uh, dynamics every time it left the ground or uh, landed. And so this ultimately completely weakened the entire structure of the right wing. On May 30th of 2007... It was reported that the National Transportation Safety Board asserted Chalk Ocean Airways failed to identify and properly repair fatigue cracks on the 1947 Grumman Turbo Mallard. The plane lost its right wing a few minutes after takeoff for the Bahamas at 500 feet and plunged into the ocean. The Safety Board, in its final report on the probable cause of the crash, noted numerous maintenance-related problems on the aircraft and another owned by the company, raising questions about Chalk's Ocean Airways aircraft maintenance practices. The signs of structural problems were there but not addressed. The Safety Board Chairman, Mark Rossner, also said that the Federal Aviation Administration failed to detect and correct the airline's maintenance shortfalls. Regulators exempt older seaplanes from rigorous structural oversight. Chalks had no comment on the safety board's findings. The FAA said it had no indication that the airline's maintenance program was in question. The regulations are crystal clear that the carrier has primary responsibility for airworthiness of its fleet, and that includes the appropriate structural repairs, the agency said in a statement. Now, the interesting thing is they had an FAA inspector that came in and overviewed all this work, approved it just two months prior to this aircraft uh, departing on its flight. By the, the aircraft itself held 17 passengers, and so by the FAA's own rules, it did not fall into an airline transport category, which unfortunately, the oldest of the old airplanes was now removed from secondary inspections because it no longer fit the criteria that the FAA set forward, which is what the NTSB was extremely critical about. They also thought and alluded to that there was maybe too much of a a informal relationship between the FAA and Chalk Airways. Riddled by this report, their aircraft aging fleet, they can't replace them. They're cannibalizing. Pilots are leaving. This was the final nail in the coffin for the longest continuing operating airline. And that same year in 2007, Chalks ceased to exist. And to this day, uh, no longer is in existence as a airline operating out of Miami. So uh, just a combination of many years of issues and really the business model changing, ultimately ending up into this horrific accident, uh, which caused not only the aircraft and the crew to be lost, but ultimately the airline itself. I did want to talk a little bit about it because we talked, uh, <laughs> joked a little bit in the beginning about uh, how this episode came to be, but the television show Miami Vice, a symbol of both Miami in the 1980s, featured a chalk seaplane in its opening credits. So if you can picture the Jan Hammer song, the and you see uh, pink flamingos, I actually will be seeing those soon enough myself. We're traveling to Aruba here in February, uh, so we'll get a chance to look at those. Um, but no, uh, you'll actually see this chalk airplane taking off in the opening credits of a Miami Vice. So uh, there's that. Uh, 
Uh, so that's and this is actually that particular aircraft. Its uh, tail number was November two nine six nine, and you'll see it in the opening credits of Miami Vice, the actual aircraft that crashed in this incident. Um, it was featured in several episodes. It was also, and this came back to where yours truly was able to come up with the idea for this episode. Uh, you don't have to question my music listening, but it was George Michael's Careless Whisper. Uh, it was basically, um, you know, featured in there that the lady was running away from a situation where somebody was cheating and she got onto the Chalks airline and flew off to the Bahamas. If you also are a fan of Spooky Season, if you liked our Spooky Season, this will fit right into it. It was the final scenes of the Silence of the Lambs where Dr. Frederick Chilton is seen disembarking on a Chalks aircraft in Bimini where Hannibal Lecter is waiting to have him for dinner. A Chalks plane also makes an appearance at the end of the After the Sunset Pierce Brosnan and Salma Hymek characters embracing as they stand next to it. Uh, Chalks fleet was a high maintenance as it was glamorous. It was a unique carrier, its Watson Island base being the smallest port of entry into the United States. Chalk's revenues were about $7.5 million in 1986. That's when it carried 130,000 passengers. Most were staying at the resort's international properties, although island residents used the airline for shopping trips to Miami. And we talked about this as well earlier on, that that resort actually bought the airline. So that makes a lot of sense why it would be their primary business would be their, um, you know, their patrons there. Well, my friends, the ticker is telling me that it is time for me to wrap up this episode. I hope you like it. I hope it fits the format that people are looking for. Uh, I'm really happy to be back in full health and on here talking with all of you. Remember to send me a line at dapodcast85 at gmail.com. Drop me some of your own stories. Maybe tell me some some stuff that out there that maybe you want to hear about. Uh, also, remember, we have the podcast stickers on the website for purchase for $5 a piece if you'd like to purchase one. And uh, please remember to subscribe to the channel as it helps me get the word out there. Uh, I did want to mention on the end here, uh, there's just been some tragic incidents lately. A person that I knew crashed outside of Indianapolis. Um, unfortunately, himself and his passenger both passed away. My hometown airport, not the one I worked at, but my hometown airport in Lennington, Michigan, uh, TBM crashed on departure over the last weekend, and both individuals died in that plane crash and their dog. Um, you know, hard to speculate at this point, but the weather was definitely IFR. I know that airport doesn't have, I think, a lot of things like glycol, or if it does, it's very limited. But uh, just remember when you're out flying, especially this time of year in the winter, do some extra checks, keep a close eye on things, and uh, all all else fails, you can always go tomorrow. So a uh, couple of those stories out there, I'll give people an update on some of the things I talked in the past podcast of some people that I know in the industry that unfortunately had an accident uh, in, in the Virgin Islands with the propane. Um, we talked about that in the last episode. So uh, a few things for us to follow up on, but uh, thank you all for p- taking some time to l- sit down and listen to our stories today. And I am looking forward to uh, our next episode. But until next time, my friends, I will see you down the runway.